If you're one of those who believes that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you're destined for eternity in heaven, would you say amen? Amen. Okay. Now, while you're uh, thinking through what I just asked you, turn to Romans chapter 8 and John chapter 3, and we're going to talk about the reality of what you just said to be true. Jesus died for you, and therefore you're destined for eternity, and Scripture speaks specifically about you in Romans chapter 8. You see this verse on the screen, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, however you, Paul's talking about those who are believers, he's writing to the church in Rome, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I'm going to take a minute and pray with you, and we're going to talk about the reality of this truth as we look at a story in John chapter 3. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you right now, not only having declared the truth of who you are in song, you are the Lion of Judah, and you are the one who is mighty to save. But we want to know more about you, and we want to know more about who we are to you. And for those, Father, who are investigating it and maybe new to church this morning, I pray that you would speak closely to them and be close to them. Help them to understand the truths of what we're talking about. Father, for those who are believers, I pray that you would encourage us. Help us to see things that we can't see on our own through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. However, you are not in the flesh, so that you should be a huge confidence booster to you. A huge encouragement because Paul's saying, whatever is the case with someone else, whatever is the case with the individual who does reject God or doesn't accept his ways, it's not true with you. You're not under condemnation. You're no longer in the flesh because the Spirit of God is in you. Therefore, you're destined for eternity. See, that's a match for Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see how the two work together? Verse, verse 9 and verse 1, they're a match for each other. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you, there's no condemnation, and you're destined for eternity. That's why I can stand here this morning and say, heaven's waiting for you. I hope you never grow tired of verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. I hope that never becomes boring to you. We've been doing this for 49 weeks so far, if you can imagine. We've been in the book of Romans for 49 weeks, and you're going to keep hearing the truth of verse 1 of chapter 8 over and over and over again. And so far, throughout these 49 weeks together, Paul has made something abundantly clear that you and I can't get to heaven on our own. We can't do it in our own ability. That means God had to be, at some point in your life, if you're a believer this morning, God had to be active in your life, not passive, but active in drawing you in. And this has been the entirety of Paul's argument all the way through Romans. If you're new here this morning, you stepped in on a really good day. Because essentially, the argument of Romans is from chapter 1 to chapter 8, Paul's saying, you are fallen, you're short of the glory of God, you have sin, and you can't fix it, but God can. And God does it through Jesus Christ, and he draws you into relationship with him, and you're destined for eternity as a result of that. This reality is that God's Spirit has illuminated your mind. That's why I pray the way that I do when I pray with you about God helping us to understand these things. Because when God illuminates your mind, you have a choice to respond. And at some point in the past, if you're a believer, you made the most important response. You chose to believe And in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God entered your life 
and he began changing you, and you were instantly made a new creation. So Paul can write with great confidence, therefore, there is now no condemnation. You're not destined for hell, you're destined for heaven. You chose wisely new hope. No condemnation for you, you're not in the flesh. Now the reality of the truth that we're talking about is this, unless a person has the Spirit, that one does not belong to God. That's what verse 9 was telling us. If someone doesn't have the Spirit in them, they don't belong to God. In verse 9, it becomes very, very clear that the Spirit enters you instantly at the moment you profess faith because God said the Holy Spirit is what preserves you and keeps you and protects you until you enter into heaven. God seals you. So for someone to tell you that, no, you get the Holy Spirit later in life when you're more mature, that's not the case. Scripture says, according to verse 9, it's at that moment. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a believer and you wouldn't abide in him. But we're told, according to Scripture, that Jesus' Spirit, God's Spirit, abides in us. Look with me on the screen. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him. We know that we know that we know. We know that we abide in him because he has given us of his Spirit. Outside of a relationship with God, what we just talked about in the first four minutes... Outside of a relationship with God, what I just shared with you is not understood by people who are distant from God. It looks like foolishness to them. What are you talking about? Like a spirit invading your life. Scripture says that those kind of things are foolishness to people who are not in relationship with God. We talked about this last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You see it on the screen. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. See, this issue demands God's activity in your life. And you might be thinking right now, man, it seems like, Mark, you're making a really, really big deal out of this thing. I want you to hear me on this. This is the issue. This is the big issue. Eternity hinges on this. Without God in you. Without God cleansing you, giving you a new heart, making you a new creation, eternity escapes from you. But the Bible says this is easily misunderstood, and it appears as foolishness to some people. So I thought the best way to help us understand this was to go into a historical story in which Jesus is in a conversation with an individual, and they're talking over this very issue. And if you've ever wondered who gets into heaven, this story is for you. So I'm going to ask you to go to John chapter 3 with me, and maybe you already placed your finger there, or you have your phone open and you're looking at it there. If you didn't bring a Bible and you don't have a phone with you with a Bible on it, there's Bibles in the racks around you. And if you need a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back when you leave this, this morning. They're on a brown table back there. Just take one with you. Love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So what we're going to get here is a really eyewitness account. This is very vivid. If you've ever thought, man, it would be fun to go to a coffee shop and sit down with Jesus and just talk theology, this is kind of what's happening in this setting. Very vivid. You can almost feel the ocean breeze on you and, and smell the desert air from the Middle East. And, and you sense what's going on because the writer, John, puts us right into the heart of the story. It says this in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I'm kind of wondered if I've read this story over the years, do they go up on the rooftop of the house? Because that's where a lot of theologians went. 
They'd go up on the rooftop in the evening where it was very cool, breeze blowing across, the heat of the day, sun was gone. Or sometimes they would walk outside and sit underneath a fig tree in the shade of the tree, and they would just talk about the things of God. We don't know that detail, but what we do know is this guy is a ruler of the Pharisees. He's a ruler of the people of Israel, and that means he's a lawyer. This guy's a very educated person. He's an attorney, and verse 10 says he's also a teacher of the people of Israel. So if you're thinking 2017, you might be thinking, what's his equal like here in this day and age? Well, he's a scholar, and he's a very successful businessman, and he's ascended to the highest court in the land because the Bible tells us that he sits on the Supreme Court. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the 70-member ruling body over the entire nation. So this guy's highly accomplished. He's at least in his middle 30s, maybe his early 30s, because of the status that he has achieved. The Pharisees are few in number. There's only 6,000 of them. They're a member of a minority political party. But under the king who's ruling at that time, he's allowed them to have a position in the political world. And they're middle-class individuals. And and so we find this Nicodemus individual as being a member of the middle class who has worked his way up to a ruling position, and he's part of the elite of the elite of the elite. And so he comes in by night because he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Two reasons, I think. One is he probably doesn't want it to imply that the Sanhedrin is giving their um, blessing to who Jesus is because the Sanhedrin really does not like Jesus. The Supreme Court is against him. But also, most likely, he doesn't want it to imply that he's favoring Jesus, so he doesn't necessarily want his neighbors in the community to think that he's giving his favor to Jesus. So he doesn't want the disfavor of his colleagues. What's important is not when he came, but that he came. And he specifically, in verse 2, says to Jesus, you're a rabbi, because he addresses him that way. So this is really important because he's addressing Jesus as an equal. We have a person who's got a lot of credentials after his name. He's got a lot of earned degrees, and he's approaching Jesus as a rabbi to a rabbi, a teacher to a teacher, an authority to an authority, using the title of rabbi for Jesus. And in verse 2, you find he's not asking a question. He just makes an open-ended statement. Rabbi, we know you're from God. No one can do what you can do unless they're from God. We understand you must be sent. So you right away understand this guy is attracted by the miracles. He's seen things. He's heard about these things that this Jesus has done, and it's clear he needs more data. He's an investigator. He's a person who likes information, and he needs to investigate this Jesus. It's very clear to me that Nicodemus is deeply longing to understand. He's really, really sincere. So put yourself in this setting. He's a teacher of Israel. He's never attracted crowds of thousands, but Jesus does. And Jesus speaks in the most simple terms, yet they have such power. He's never held people's attention that way. And he's heard answers to questions he's had all of his life. How does Jesus do that? And then he sees miracles. He never dreamed of performing a miracle himself. What's going on here? So you've got a guy of really, really high moral character who's a super achiever, and he's got a deep spiritual longing, a hunger. Yet he's spiritually blind. 
Now, what's kind of unfortunate about the Bible that you hold in your hand right now is that it's a modern version of the writings of Scripture. And that means it has chapter breaks. When John wrote the book of John, there were no chapter breaks. What we call chapter 2 and chapter 3, they just flowed together. Well, if you read chapter 2 later today, you're going to see that verses 23, 24, 25, they talk about God being omniscient, God knowing everything, God being completely aware of what's going on. Well, that's not by accident that John puts this story of Nicodemus here because God's omniscient and he knows our hearts. He built us. He knows how we think and he can read us like an open book. So when Nicodemus comes in verse 3 and says, you're from God, We know because of the things that you do, Jesus is not interested in the shallow statement that he's making, a very shallow statement of belief, and Jesus doesn't take it at face value. To you and I, as we're reading it, it looks like belief. It's like, wow, this guy who's part of the Supreme Court, he's a believer in Jesus. But no, the reality is Jesus understands it's solely based on signs. It's based on miracles. So Nicodemus likes miracle Jesus. But is he going to like the Jesus that comes out in the next statement? So instead of affirming the statement of faith, Jesus pushes back. you got somebody in your life who has very little interest in the things of God, but they say that they've got faith and, and they're good with God. I would encourage you in those moments when you have those conversations not to be afraid to push back. Make sure that you're talking the same language, that you're speaking the same talk. Don't just let it pass by without challenging some of the thoughts. And I mean in a very gentle way because that's what you see Jesus doing here. Watch in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and I want you to stop right there. When Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying, pay attention, pay attention, truth, truth. It's an ancient way of gaining people's attention because what they're about to say is so emphatic. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot See the kingdom of God. Do you notice that Jesus is responding to something Nicodemus never asked about? There was no question there, right? He didn't make a question, and Jesus has responded with something completely different. He came in the door with fascination over the supernatural. I want to understand miracles, but Jesus is not interested in that. He goes to the real issue. Dude, you need to be born again. The real issue is your heart. You need to deal with the reality of who you are. You need to start over. God has just told someone, you have no entrance into my kingdom. You're not destined for eternity. It should really catch your attention that God would say that boldly to someone. Because if you're of the mindset that everybody gets to go to heaven, no matter what, God's standing there saying, no, that's not the case. Unless they're born again, they don't get into my kingdom, except on one condition, that you're born again. So the implications are staggering. Because just like in 2017, just like in the day and age that you live in, the thought among the ancient people was this. If I keep the rules, well, at least most of them, and if I do the rituals, I could tip the scales in my favor. If I show up and and just go through the motions, God's going to like me. He's going to let me in. So you've got a guy here who all his life has observed the law. He's joined the Pharisees. He became a member of the Supreme Court. And Jesus tells him, your personal accomplishments don't cut it. 
It's like somebody showing up for Christmas Eve services here at New Hope or maybe just at Easter services and then standing before God one day at the judge as the end of their life is appeared and they have to answer to God and saying to God, hey, remember that one time I went to New Hope on Christmas Eve and I was even there the night the lights went out when they had no power. I was still went and, and I was there during Easter. I followed the rituals. I went through the motions. But Jesus is saying, no matter how religious you are, no one enters heaven without experiencing the personal regeneration. I don't often put quotes of my own notes on the screen, but this is so important. I wanted you to see this. Not because it's so profound, but sometimes when you read things, it just burns in your mind. And it stays with you. No matter how religious a person is, no one enters the kingdom of God without experiencing personal regeneration. That's what Jesus is telling him. See, Nicodemus is no different than many of your friends, maybe even you today, who think that you're good with God because you do things. God's saying, that's not it. You don't understand how far short you fall of the glory of God. We need a Savior to get us into the kingdom because we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. So ultimately, Jesus is saying to humanity, your efforts have no power to save you. This is so powerful that I need to Linger on this for just a moment as you read one more quote. While mine might not have been that profound, R.C.H. Linsky, he lived in the 1800s. He was studying John 3, just like you are, and Romans 8, and this is how he tied it together. Jesus' word regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment. All merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or station. Can you imagine what a massive blow this is? to a Jew who's been told you're selected, you're part of the children of God, you're chosen, and he becomes a Pharisee, and then he becomes a member of the Supreme Court, and he keeps all the rituals. What a massive blow that he built his world on everything, and Jesus is saying it is nothing but a worthless heap of ashes, so God is telling the most religious man in the country, you're not in the kingdom. And he comes to Jesus because he believes Jesus is from God. So you can understand Nicodemus's shock and watch with me in verse 4 to his response. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? See, all the alarms are going off. He came looking to understand miracles. And to me, this is like a first-year physics student sitting down across the table from Einstein trying to understand the theory of relativity. It's like, what? I can't make sense of this. You're speaking things that I don't understand. How can a man be born when he's old now? Don't misunderstand. Nicodemus is highly educated. He's gone to the Harvard or the Yale of our day to get his law degrees. He has ascended to high positions of power. So he's not misinterpreting Jesus' literal words. So he replies back in context. What are you saying? How can I start all over again? How can I begin again, go back to the beginning? See, clearly, he cannot grasp what he's hearing. So his statement is a statement of confusion. And you should be thinking 1 Corinthians 2 right now. 
A natural man cannot understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him. They're spiritually appraised. So you see no evidence of the Holy Spirit in this guy's life. No belief in what Jesus is telling him. He can't grasp it. Are you not taken back at the magnitude of Jesus' statement? Jesus, what, what you're saying is humanly impossible. Exactly. Precisely. It is humanly impossible. You can't do it on your own. I want you to catch this, church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you notice that Jesus is not minimizing the weight of the issue in order to win Nicodemus? He's not lowering the bar and saying, well, it's just okay. You're you're a really good guy. You've done a lot of right things. I'm sure God will smile on you. He's not... He sets him straight by just hitting him straight on. This is not about your flesh, Nicodemus. This is is about a new birth which comes from above and only from above. And the only Greek word you see in your note this morning that's going to appear on the screen is the word palingenesia. It's an ancient Greek word. And it's a word that talks about this renovation of the heart. Jesus uses it here when he talks about being born again, and it's also used again throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Titus, when it talks about what happened to you. If you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, the palingenesia happened in your life. There's been a regeneration of your soul. So look very closely with me on the screen at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 and understand this palingenesia. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He's a merciful God, isn't he, church? But according to his mercy, by the washing of the palingenesia, the regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus is telling every one of us, abandon every thought that you ever had that you can fix you You can't fix you. You can't make yourself good with God, so therefore you can't get in on your own ability. Outside of the regeneration that the Holy Spirit brings because of what Jesus did to pay your price, you can't get in. So Jesus doesn't stop there with him because he's still confused. Go with me to verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, pay attention, Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. I referred to this last week when we were in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. I said we'd be coming to this for this very reason, because Jesus explains what is almost unexplainable. So I need to elaborate on this for just a moment. Because he says, unless you're born of the water and born of the Spirit, you can't get into the kingdom. What is he talking about? Well, born of the water parallels being born again. And we know he's not talking about baptism, right? Even though our minds go there, immediately we think, well, he must be talking about water baptism. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Because we know that baptism doesn't save us, right, church? Say amen if you agree with that. I'm going to make sure we're all on the same page. (laughs) Okay. Baptism doesn't save you. It's the, it's the um, expression that you are saved. It's a witness. How do we know that for sure? Well, if baptism saved you and Jesus instituted baptism as a witness, what does that say for all those Old Testament saints that knew nothing about baptism? 
Yet Hebrews chapter 11 says that Daniel, Noah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Esther, all those individuals, they looked forward to a time they could not see. And we'll see them in eternity one day, but they didn't know anything about baptism. Or what about the thief on the cross? You've got the thief on the cross next to Jesus. And in his dying breath, he says to Jesus, Master, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? What's Jesus' response? Truly, I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. So nobody took the thief off the cross, baptized him, and put him back on the cross, right? Okay. How did he get into heaven? Based on the confession of who Jesus is. Master, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Based on his confession, Jesus says, you're in. You believe. You believe that I am who I say I am. So baptism doesn't do it. So what's Jesus talking about here? We need to understand this because Jesus expects Nicodemus to understand it. I want you to understand, Nicodemus, it's, it's by the baptism of water and by the Spirit, and it's not the baptism you're thinking of. There must be something about what he's familiar with. When you see water and Spirit combined in Scripture, it's talking about a regeneration, a renewal, a new creation that only God can bring to you. So when describing spiritual restoration, God gives us a descriptive verse in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And he's talking specifically in this case to the nation of Israel, but watch how he describes it. Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. See, Nicodemus is really familiar with this passage. And he knows God's not talking about a rainstorm, and he's not talking about a baptismal tank. He's talking about giving people a clean heart, a washing of the soul that only the blood of the Lamb can do for you, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So against the backdrop of the Old Testament, Jesus is unmistakably clear. Without a spiritual washing of your soul, without God wiping away all your sin, you can't get into the kingdom. Now this is so shocking to Nicodemus that Jesus actually has to say to him, don't be shocked. Look with me at the next verse because he says to him, don't be amazed. It's in verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's telling him, contrary to what you think, eternal life is not obtained through works. And so he's shocked, and Jesus has to say, don't be shocked that I tell you you have to be born again. You can't get there on your own. You must be born again. So he uses a natural illustration to bring his point home. And he talks about the wind. And if you're sitting on floor level right now, you can probably look out the windows and see the leaves moving and the wind is moving through. You think back to Florida and what the hurricane did and we saw the damage. And you think to California in the last week and a half and you think those winds drove that wildfire. So the wind is there and you can't see it and it's uncontrollable. And it's a mystery, but you can see the effects of it. And you can see what it does. And Jesus says, so it is with the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. 
and you can't see it, but you can see the effects of it, new hope, in the transformed lives of those who belong to me. So think Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. You are not of the flesh. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And so you begin putting the pieces together that everything Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 about how our lives are transformed and how as a result of that the Holy Spirit is alive in us and we do things differently than the way that we used to do them. That's what Jesus is talking about here. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God is alive in you. Paul's just echoing what Jesus is talking about. So watch how shocked Nicodemus is. Go back into John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? How can this be? I've not been told this my whole life. You're from God. I see the sign you're doing. I can't make sense of this. How can these things be? And he can't accept what he's hearing. Why? I've arrived at a reason, and I think you'll probably arrive at the same conclusion. He's hanging on preconceived ideas about how God acts based on things that family members and friends have told him, little pieces of information along the way. And he's formed his own theology And Jesus is saying, you've missed it. He's hanging on preconceived ideas of religion, and he doesn't know what you know this morning, New Hope, because the book of Romans hasn't been written yet. But there's information available to him. But he hasn't read things that Paul wrote. He probably served with Paul in the Sanhedrin. They were both in the Supreme Court. But Paul hasn't been saved yet. He hasn't written the book of Romans, and he doesn't know that salvation is by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any one of us would boast. Because we would, wouldn't we? That we earned it. I did this. God says, no, it doesn't happen that way. So watch Jesus' response to him. He's he's about ready to let him go. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? You're leading the people of God? those whom I chose, and you don't know the basics? See, he expects Nicodemus to understand. Why? Because he's got the Old Testament. And if you've ever wondered, how did those Old Testament individuals ever know to put their faith in a God they couldn't see? The Old Testament tells us that it's littered with information about Jesus, and it should have given them all the insight that they needed. So Jesus expects him to have understanding. The Old Testament is enough. You want a prime example of that? Older Paul writing to younger Timothy. He's probably in his early 30s, Second Timothy. Paul's very near the end of his life, and look what he says to him. Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. What's that? That's the Old Testament. It's the prophets. It's Moses. It's the writings of the law, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. See, church, you're you're looking at a firsthand example of how preconceived ideas can obscure an understanding of God's nature. God desires to give you new life 
and make you a new creation and that you would be destined for eternity because he's not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. But many people arrive at the conclusion of, no, I'm good. That's all right. I show up at New Hope on Christmas Eve. I I do the Easter thing. I'm good. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm good enough. Or I can make myself good enough. My grandma told me I could. Go to the source of truth. God's word is the source of truth. All truth is in God's word. God's not going to lie to you. So this is how Jesus sends them out the door. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And from this point forward, it moves into a one-way conversation. The Pharisee adds nothing more. It's complete one-way dialogue on Jesus' part. So Nicodemus' real problem is not a lack of revelation. It's not a lack of information. In this brief conversation, he gained more knowledge than Noah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Esther ever had. He got to talk to Jesus. The Son of God is in the room with him. And he says to him, you don't accept our testimony. He's heard the most beautiful description of the palingenesia. And now he's struggling to believe what Jesus has said. So question, New Hope. Is Nicodemus responsible for the information that he has? Absolutely. He's responsible to do with something, something with what he's just learned. Even those, you got those in your life who have never heard. Somebody just talked to me in between services from the last service who said they were just at a restaurant this week reading their Bible, and a waiter, waitress walked up to him and said, what are you reading? And he said, I'm reading my Bible. And they said, what is that? Never seen a Bible in their life before. Even those who have never heard, God says, are still responsible, according to Romans chapter 1, because God said, I put myself on display in all of creation. Every man knows in their heart there is a God. Every man, every woman, every child knows there is a God. Some just choose to say, no, I'm I'm just not going to go there. So Jesus says, you do not accept our testimony. So he has a rebuke for him, for him, before he lets him go. In verse 12, I told you earthly things. And you did not believe. See, he went in the door asking about miracles. He's asking about heavenly things. He wants to know about the magnificent things. And Jesus said, I've told you the basics. And you don't believe. Why would I tell you about the magnificent things? I've told you things pertaining to earth. You're a sinner in need of a savior. You need to be born again. And you do not believe. I'm not going to fill you in on details of the magnificent stuff. You can't even handle the basics. There's a huge implication for us, church, if you're a believer. And the implication is this. When individuals refuse God's truth, it results in an inability to go any further. That's actually why the conversation ends. Jesus just stops having two-way dialogue with him. I would really encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus, don't be afraid to leave it hang there. Because Jesus does exactly that. As a matter of fact, as you read the story, you'll find that Jesus doesn't tackle anybody in the parking lot. He doesn't. He doesn't force anyone to believe. It's free will. I've told you all you need to know. What are you going to do with it? I see in this story two sides to Nicodemus. 
See the intellectual side, the guy that we would probably go hang out with at a baseball game. Very smart person who loves to be around people. He understands the working class, but he hangs with the elites. He can be both. And, and this guy's probably very interesting to talk to. And, and he's amazed by Jesus. And Jesus, the things you do are great. I'm amazed by your ability. Yet when he's told he personally needs to deal with the sin in his own life, the intellectual side gives way to the self-sufficient side. (laughs) I don't think I need a Savior. Jesus says you do. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. I got this. No, you don't. See, this is exactly what Paul's been talking about. Firsthand, you're watching it. The Holy Spirit works, draws you in, brings you into relationship, or the Holy Spirit works, draws towards you, and you walk away and say, no. And the flesh is really strong. Say, I got this. But God says, no, I got this. Trust me. Put your faith in me. You are watching God himself emphasize the truth of Romans chapter 8. So I just want you to look at the last part of verse 9 that we started with. Part B, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. See, whether or not the Spirit dwells with you is, I'll use God's words, truly, truly, is truly, truly a matter of life or death. God says there's those who are going to be in and there's those who will not be in. So the reality is really hard to hear because God says, truth, truth, no one's forced in. I'm not tackling anybody. You got free will. You can decide. But if you refuse to believe, there will be consequences. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, we get to end on a high note. And and that's verse 11 where we're going to go next week. I'm not going to go into it today. I just want you to see the reminder of what we're told by Paul. Verse 11, Romans chapter 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And God's people said, amen. And that's good stuff. And thank you, God, for letting us end on a high note. Do you need to do business with God today? Only you know. Only you know where you land on these issues. And I'm inviting you right now where you're sitting. You don't have to get up and come up here and talk to me. Right now where you're sitting, you can tell God, I need Jesus as my Savior. All you have to do is close your eyes and just talk to him. Just don't let anything else distract you. Father, I need what Mark's talking about. And he will give you a new beginning. And many people miss this, so hear this. God said that when Jesus died, he took care not only of your sins past, he took care of your sins present, and he died for all your sins future even those you have not committed yet. God did that for you. So God loves you, and he wants you to join him in eternity. So make Jesus your savior. Invite him into your life. And he says, I will make you a new creation, the palingenesia. Uh, New Hope, we believe in teaching the full counsel of God. And I would be remiss and irresponsible in my responsibilities if I didn't tell you the consequences. You can choose not to believe. 
You can choose to refuse, and you can reject this, but hear me on this. If you reject God's offer, you will stand alone on judgment day before God. Because a believer has Jesus at his right side. And Jesus will say to God the Father, that one's mine. But if you reject Jesus, you're on your own. And I'm telling you, you will fall short of the glory of God. Because we've all sinned. And God has already told us we can't get there on our own. So we need the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, who came in great power and glory and died for our sins. That's what we're talking about here. See, that's why this is life and death. So if you accept Jesus, God says you're in. If you need to pray about that right now, I'm going to pray for you that God would help you and he'd be close to you to help you understand this in a much more profound way. If you're a believer, I just want to pray for you to encourage you right now. Let's pray together. Father, you have gathered together the saints and, and individuals who are still seeking and trying to understand this. And I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would continue on even after we leave this auditorium. For those who are watching online, Father, the same thing I ask for those individuals that your Holy Spirit would remain on those who are trying to understand this, God, and that you will work to draw them in just like you did with Nicodemus. How encouraging, Father, that we see that he came to faith in Christ later in Scripture and he professed Jesus as his Savior. And I believe the same to be true for individuals who are hearing this this morning and didn't ever deal with this previously. God, draw them into relationship with you, that they might spend eternity in heaven with you. Even if they don't know the words to say, God, you know what they need to say. Guide them. Be close to them. Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are already believers, I pray that you would leave them with encouragement in their hearts, that be reminded once again that we do belong to you and we're destined for eternity, all because of the one who redeemed us. It's in his name that we pray to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.